Um, more terrifying mascot with a head of steam, Ralphie or Landshark Tony? <laughs> uh, Ralphie. So my first game as the head coach at Colorado at home, we played at Denver the first game. We are coming out, and the person, and then we're in the tunnel, and the person tells me, go one, two, three, go. So I bring the team out, and Ralphie is not out of the cage, and Ralphie's looking me eye to eye with the cage open, and I go, I'm going to die. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I wanted to put a little bow uh, on my time on the Must Bus. It came to an end, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, I, I confirm that Baylor, Baylor is indeed good. Um, I actually remember watching Baylor when I covered Kentucky, Indiana, Sweet 16, 2012. And I remember that game was at the Georgia Dome. And I watched Baylor play right before the Indiana-Kentucky game. And I remember thinking that that team was actually more athletic than the Kentucky team who had Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Terrence Jones, et cetera. And then Kentucky obviously like went on to beat that Baylor team. But I just remember being blown away by Baylor's athleticism. And uh, that, that Baylor team on Monday night, I wasn't there in person, obviously, this time. But it, it felt like the same sort of deal. Just unbelievable athleticism, so skilled, that putback dunk from Vital. Holy cow! Um, that was that was pretty much like the Supreme Court dunking on the NCAA. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, uh, yeah. For those who haven't seen that, not not the best day for the old NC2A today. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that as much today. Um, but but Arkansas, Arkansas hung in there, and that's what I loved about this team. And my time on the Must Bus, it was so fun. Ironic it is that I said I said in the video that um, you know Arkansas would be such a fun bandwagon team because they blew teams out and then they became the first team in seven years to overcome double-digit deficits and win three NCAA tournament games. So foot and mouth comment there, but they did have the Elite Eight, the elite eight upside. But anyways, um, I, I kind of realized it's been a hot minute since I got to root for like an actual good college basketball team. <laughs> um, you know, that sounds weird because Indiana grad, uh, haven't reached the Elite Eight since I went there. Last college basketball team besides my alma mater that I actually rooted for, the Florida team repeated. And I only did that because, as I've said before, I picked them to win it all that first year when they were a three seed. So uh, I pretty much became like a full-on Florida fan for those two years. So it was a lot of fun. But I kind of wanted to just remind myself what it was like to be a fan of college sports because it's so different than pro sports. And you experience this all the time. I mean, it's different being an LSU fan as opposed to being a Saints-Pelicans fan. Um, like if the Cubs were like when the Cubs lose in the playoffs last year, I pretty much am, I'm angry and I say, well, blow it up. And Mm -hmm. it's so different in college sports and and like the heartbreak that comes with it and the suddenness of it. I I just thought it was kind of fun being at what felt like the beginning of this run for Arkansas, where, you know, I think that deal is going to get done with Eric Musselman and he's going to be there a long time. Saw the Jalen Tate comment that came out about uh, this year, kind of setting the standard for that program. And I was like, yeah, that's what every fan base should hope for. And I was also sad to see it end for Alabama like that. Um, I know I didn't officially jump on the Alabama bandwagon, but when that Alex Reese shot went down, Lauren and I both just let out this stunned yell. And that doesn't happen very often when you're sitting there as like a neutral observer and you have this reaction that you can't control and you just decide, I'm gonna yell in this moment. It doesn't happen very often to me, especially, but um, I, I like watching Alabama too. Nate Oates, fun team, just couldn't make a free throw. 
Last month of SEC Hoops, though, it was really, it was awesome. It was great. And I am now committed to being at least more of like a January Hoops guy. I'm going to do that next year. And it's, it's tough with this job because we go all in with football with the fall. No secret about that through bowl season and everything. Uh, first priority is still going to be football. But I think I should do a bandwagon team every year. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Is that... Does that sound like a good idea? Should I hop on one bandwagon? It doesn't necessarily have to be SEC, but I feel like that helps in terms of the content. Yeah, I think the important thing that we really got is that you're not a curse. You know, after Indiana, I was really yes. suspecting it. And then with the first must bus game, I was like, oh no, Connor may just be with the bad juju. But mm-hmm. no, no, we've we've shirked ourselves with the curses. This is personal growth time in 2021. <laughs> Big time personal growth time, for sure. Plan today. We have a very football-heavy episode, a uh, little double interview episode today, actually. We've got uh, SEC running back talk with Pro Football Focus's Brent Rollins, a lot of great stuff with him. And then I also talked with current Memphis defensive coordinator and former Ole Miss defensive coordinator Mike McIntyre. Great, great interviews coming up. Uh, plus, we're going to do a little bit of watching kid shows as adults in figuring it out. But before we do all of that, Saturday Football Newsletter, that is providing today's podcast. Again, I'm going to go off script because that's how much I love the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you have not subscribed yet to the Saturday Football Newsletter, I don't know what you're doing. All you got to do is go into your browser. You type saturday.football, put in your email address, and that's it. You just get all of the best headlines and stories sent straight to your email. You don't have to go on social media and dig around for stories. You don't have to subscribe to a bunch of different things. We have everything covered. And it's not just SDS content that it links to. It's the big stories in college football. And that's why I love about it. You get such great perspective. You want to be the informed fan. You don't want to just be the person who sees a random headline here or there. Be the person that actually understands what's going on in college sports. Adam Spencer does such a great job putting it together. Dustin Schutte as well. And I know that if you are subscribing to the Saturday Football Newsletter, you are automatically going to be a smarter fan. So go do that. It's so easy. Saturday.football into your browser. No .com needed. Saturday.football. Put in your email address today. All you got to do. Okay. In roughly, I don't know, five days, Mac Jones went from being a pretty ho-hum prospect, I would say, to now what is easily the most polarizing prospect in the draft. And it's not because he, he didn't get canceled because of some old tweets or or anything like that. He really didn't do anything, honestly, except he had a pro day, uh, another pro day. If, if you saw on Tuesday, Mac Jones was trending nationally on Twitter. Will, you texted me that clip that um, <laughs> I think everybody's seen it by now. And if you haven't, um, just search Mac Jones. It'll be the first thing that comes up on, on Twitter. It's the clip of Mac overthrowing a guy and then an immediate cut to Kyle Shanahan who didn't change his facial expression one bit, but of course, the way that it's shot, everybody's like, wow, Kyle Shanahan probably regrets going to Mac Jones's pro day instead of Justin Fields. Fields is at the root of why Mac Jones became so polarizing. Fields by himself has been, I'd say, pretty polarizing during the pre-draft process. Again, not because of anything that he did, but last week, Gil Brandt tweets out that one team thinks that Fields is a fourth-round prospect and that teams are all over the place on him. And then he turns it into the 49ers traded picks to get up to number three overall to get Trey Lance. That kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but naturally, the field supporters come out. I'm in that camp for what it's worth. Like I, I like Justin Fields a lot. I think his potential is through the roof. 
I think even though he has some things that he has to learn about reading coverages when they play nickel, and I do worry a little bit about the fact that he's almost too calm in certain situations in the pocket because he thinks he can get out of anything because he really did that throughout most of his time in college. But how does this all relate to Mac Jones? Well, Peter King reported that Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch were going to Mac Jones's pro day and not just in fields, which was on the same day. The TV cameras, they would have been able to figure that out during the actual showing of this, but needless to say, everyone was sent into this, this tizzy. Draft Twitter freaked out. Like, oh my gosh, how could anyone like Mac Jones instead of Justin Fields? Some of the Twitter comments, woof. Of course this turns into a black and white issue instead of a football issue. We had no problem with Mac Jones being considered like a mid-first round pick in all the mocks and then watching Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields go well ahead of him. But then the second that there's any sort of hint that the 49ers could take Jones instead of Fields, Boy, the Twitter warriors, they were ready to go for that pro day. So of course, that clip of Jones's overthrow goes viral and the one of Fields making basically the same throw that Zach Wilson made a week prior without pads and a pass rush, might I add, goes viral. And everyone's like, see, how dumb are the 49ers for thinking Mac Jones is better than Justin Fields? Well, let me take a quick break for a second. Was there anything wrong with what I just said? No. No, I think I think all that's about accurate. You're you're right. It's like we were fine as a society with him being a first round pick, but a high first right? round pick? No, sir. What all of this is failing to recognize is that we always think that there's this massive discrepancy between quarterbacks in round one, and there's usually not. I already did the whole rant about the quarterbacks drafted in the first round from 2009 to, to 2016, and they're now all on different teams. Here's the list of round one quarterbacks in the last 10 years who are not number one overall. So we're taking the number one overall quarterbacks out of this scenario. So like last year, obviously that would be Joe Burrow. So 2020, Tua Tagovailoa, Justin Herbert, and Jordan Love. 2019, Daniel Jones and Dwayne Haskins. By the way, this is all in the order that these guys were picked in the first round. 2018, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar Jackson. A lot of quarterbacks. 2017, this one hurts. Mitch Trubisky, Pat Mahomes, Deshaun Watson. No need to discuss that any further. 2016, Carson Wentz, Paxton Lynch. 2015, Marcus Mariota. 2014, Blake Bortles, The Boat. Johnny Manziel, Teddy Bridgewater. 2013, EJ Manuel. Nothing else. 2012, Robert Griffin III, Ryan Tannehill, Brandon Whedon. 2011, Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert, Christian Ponder. My point is, after number one overall, it is way more of a crapshoot than we realize. You could not tell listening to that, reading that back, which guys were top three picks and which guys were barely picked at the end of the first round. And I get that we're allowed to have opinions on this. I criticized the love for Josh Allen. I was wrong about that. I, like everyone else, criticized the Giants for taking Daniel Jones, and I was right about that, but I'll admit I was wrong to say that they were insane to pass on Dwayne Haskins, which at the time was a very, very popular opinion. But man, Mac Jones is not Daniel Jones, and he sure as heck isn't Josh Allen, at least when it comes to what he does well, or rather what we've seen him do well at the college level. The biggest knock on Mac Jones is that he was in too perfect of a situation and that he can't expect it to be surrounded by, one, the best scheming coordinator in the sport, Steve Sarkeesian, and two, he's not going to have the luxury of someone like Devontae Smith, who, as I always say, last year he was an all-pro NFL receiver playing college football. The Mac Jones doubters say that he doesn't have as high of a ceiling as Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, or Trevor Lawrence, which is entirely based on one of two things. One is that he isn't mobile like those guys. 
And then two is that he doesn't go viral for those throws like Fields, Wilson, or even Lawrence. Cool. I never watched Mac Jones once last year and thought, yeah, he just couldn't make that throw. I had a couple instances where I thought, yeah, he's just not quite as athletic to be able to pick up that first down with his legs. But if that's his biggest shortcoming, I'm okay with it because the lack of outside pocket mobility doesn't mean that there's a lack of footwork in the pocket. Jones has a ton of that. The guy threw over 400 passes and he only took 13 sacks and he threw four picks. He averaged 11.2 yards per attempt. And when he did make those mistakes, he always bounced back from them within that game, usually on the next drive. He used to be the guy that couldn't shake off the mistakes. He was the guy who would slam his helmet down and Saban's like, you gotta calm down. You gotta be able to have a more even kill tempo. And he, he was able to figure that out by the end of his career. If Kyle Shanahan looks at all of that and also looks at the fact that everyone loves that guy, I have no problem with it. If Kyle Shanahan decides that he just likes Fields a little bit more, but he wanted to make sure that he didn't overlook Mac Jones, and that's why he went to Mac Jones' pro day, I'm okay with that too. Playing quarterback is all about the situation that you go into. Kyle Shanahan's job right now, we assume at least after trading up to number three overall, is to find his future quarterback. That means who can I put in spots to legitimately win me games and get me to a Super Bowl? Not a single thing that I saw from Mac Jones dating back to when I saw him in person in the Citrus Bowl suggests that a coach would be foolish to build around him. And for all the people who say that it was just so easy for Mac and he couldn't have walked into a better situation, look, I think that's crap. He had to replace Tua, who changed the standard for Alabama quarterbacks. Everyone wanted to see Bryce Young, who was always breathing down his neck. That is not an easy thing for a quarterback to deal with when you've got that guy looking over your shoulder. And what did Mac Jones do? He led one of the most dominant seasons that we've ever seen. And not in some like JT Barrett way where he never threw over 30 yards. Pro Football Focus had him as the best graded quarterback of all the draft eligible guys against the Blitz, slightly ahead of Trevor Lawrence. I'm not saying he's better than Trevor Lawrence. Minute, I'll get to that in a minute here. Pro Football Focus also had his grade against ranked opponents as 94.4, which if you just took that grade, Mac Jones against ranked opponents, and compared it to every other quarterback in college football with their full schedule, it still would have been the best. This isn't Mac Jones over Trevor Lawrence. That I could understand if there was, th there would be a rightful place for blowback if that were the case. This is Mac Jones potentially being the third quarterback picked in the draft. After the year that he just had, I, I don't know, that, like that's not crazy to me. And sorry, Twitter experts, you cannot convince me otherwise just by showing me a couple random overthrows from his pro day. I'm gonna keep trying though. Well, you are, <laughs> and I know those texts are coming, Will. I know they're coming. That's all right, that's perfectly fine. Let's go to uh, my interview with Pro Football Focus's Brent Rollins. We dug into all the great running back storylines in the SEC. So, so many good running backs this year. He went through who he'd rank as his best, which are in tough spots, which could break out, all those things. Then after that, we'll go to interview with Mike McIntyre, former Colorado coach slash Ole Miss defensive coordinator, current Memphis defensive coordinator. I had never talked with Mike before, so it was really, really fun to be able to chop it up with him, kind of talk about his career. So first, here is Brent Rollins, and then on the other end, Mike McIntyre. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Brent Rollins of Pro Football Focus. Brent, I, I want to talk about SEC running backs today because I feel like there are just so, so many good ones returning in the league. And it feels like maybe the best group of returning running backs in the SEC since like, I don't know, maybe 2017. Maybe you could even go back to 2015. 
I am dubbing it, and if you want to take this and run with it, by all means, Lord knows everyone takes enough of PFF stuff as well, but I am dubbing this return of the back. What do you think? Do you think, can, can that stick? I mean, that's very good. Your Mark Morrison, you know, sort of slant there is, uh, I think that was his name, right? That was the singer of that song, but no, that's pretty good. I, I live to, to come up with return of the Mac puns, so um, that's that's a little bit too much too much in the breadbasket. But in all seriousness, I, I find myself gravitating to PFF, especially when it comes to evaluating running backs and line play. And I think more than any other position, it's interesting to look at that because you guys do such a great job of isolating those variables and not just letting the raw numbers tell the story. I wanted to bring you on because I legitimately think that there are you know, seven probably SEC fan bases who believe that their team has the best returning running back in the SEC. Alabama, Brian Robinson, Auburn, Tank Bigsby, Georgia's got Zamir White, Kentucky, my guy Chris Rodriguez, you got Ole Miss with Jerry Neely, and then, oh, by the way, South Carolina with Kevin Harris, Texas A&M with Isaiah Spiller. That's half the league right there. Knee-jerk reaction. When I read that list to you, who was the guy that you thought to yourself, meh, he probably doesn't belong in that group? I don't think any of them don't belong. I think I think they all belong in that group. And, and the one, what's interesting about the group, and, and when you talk about you know return of the back and all, all the things there is the depth and the depth of backs that really haven't just been carrying and toting the load heavily. I want to say Spiller. I think I looked it up. I think Spiller is the only one out of all of those that you just mentioned that has over 300 career carries to this point. Wow. And Brian Robinson's not even at 300, and he's been at Alabama for four years. So, you know, it's it's a very deep and talented, you know, set of backs, but not that we just see, have seen over and over and over again and get just touches after touches after touches. It's interesting that you bring that up because Tank Bigsby is the guy who is expected to be this workhorse. And now, especially with – some of the depth issues that Auburn's having via the transfer portal and they lose a guy like DJ Williams, I, I know that contributes to it, but PFF recently named Tank Bigsby top returning back in America. And I know those weren't your rankings, so I'm not gonna do the whole thing where I ask you to defend someone else's rankings because I, I hate it when people do that to me. I'll instead frame this in a different way. PFF had him for 46 missed tackles last year. That translates no matter what system he's in, but now he's got Mike Bobo who helped dial up the year of course that Kevin Harris had at South Carolina. What do you think that Big, Big B's out? Oh gosh, I, I should just call him Tank because Bigsby is apparently too difficult to pronounce. What do you think Tank's <laughs> outlook should be heading into year two at Auburn? I think the sky's the limit for him. And the instant for me that I watched, that I knew that was the second game of the season against Georgia. Mm. And it wasn't, it wasn't like he had great numbers against Georgia that game, but he was just, he was the one guy in that game who, no matter what, like I'm making a play, I'm, you could just see the toughness, the, the ability in that game. And it wasn't so much as a runner in that game. I think he only had maybe like 30 yards rushing, but it was a receiver. And interestingly enough, they rarely used him as a receiver throughout the rest of the season. And that was kind of something that I think you'll see more of for him this year is just finding unique ways to get him touches as opposed to just turning it and handing it to him. 
some of the some of that with Tank feels like, well, you know, he had to break all those tackles because Auburn's offensive line, four new starters, it was really bad. I mean, it just wasn't particularly good. Besides that that area improving though, what's the area that you think he can personally improve upon the most? Is it just simply staying healthy? I think number one, yes, and carrying the load and, and being someone who can get it twenty times a game and be fine and play a 10, you know, play a 12 game season, getting it 20 to 25 times a game because he's going to. Yeah. He's just, he's one of those guys who just takes on so much contact too. And you just kind of wonder about that long term. And I even, I made the suggestion, look, get, get Keon Brooks in there. I had Keon Henry Brooks, the, the kid from, from Vanderbilt who entered the transfer portal. And I said, you know, this would be a great guy to, to, to spell tank because they're going to rely on him so, so much. And I wonder what that can really look like with the loaded boxes that they're probably going to see because people are going to dare Bo Nix to throw the ball. And I, I just think that's the way that the offense plays out. But is that something that could hold him back? Like, do you think tank being in this role now where, you know, if he is expected to carry the ball 25 times per, per game, he's going to see all of these loaded boxes and it's going to become more of a, a volume thing instead of, uh, you know, kind of what it was for a bit last year where he looked really, really efficient. Yeah, I think, I think you're 100% right. that He's going to – it's going to be tough sledding for him. But I will say, even when you think about Mike Bobo and his offenses in the past, he's had that where the running game was – it was running game-centric. And even with Kevin Harris a year ago, one singular person running game-centric – and still found ways to run the football and still found ways to get yards and sustain offense. So I, I put a little bit of an onus on trusting the coaching part of that to find ways to use tank and be very creative with him, even though he is going to be their lone playmaker. I want to talk Georgia backs because in terms of depth, I think it's Georgia and Texas A&M who, in my opinion, have more of it in the backfield than anyone in America. Zamir White, James Cook, that, those guys coming back, it's obviously huge. I thought Zamir had some games where that burst that we saw in high school, it was there. And then there were other games when he looked like a guy with two major knee surgeries in the last three years. Based on what we've seen, is this just who he's going to be? Or do you think that there's any chance that we see maybe like a 2020 version of what Najee Harris was? I don't know that we see that. I think that's like what asking anyone to be what Najee was a year ago is is, is kind of setting the bar quite high. But in terms of, of Zamir White, like you saw it occasionally, and then more and more as the year went along. Even in the game against Cincinnati, who was continually loading the box against Georgia, I know there was one run in particular. I think he broke three or four tackles just to get an eight-yard run that should have been a minus two-yard gain. So he's going to be that guy. But I think for Georgia, their running game this year will be so much better and more explosive because of how good their passing game is going to be. They, like one of the things with, when you look at some of the numbers with White and Cook and some of their other backs, they have a lot of 10-plus yard runs or the 15 explosive type runs that you see from a lot of the other backs in the conference. And I think a lot of that was just because of the struggles in the passing game. Now with JT Daniels back with the weapon, the absolute plethora of weapons they have on the outside, I think they're going to see not quite as many loaded boxes. They're going to see teams that fear their passing game a little more so and open up a little more explosive running game for them. But you're 100% right crazy. about the death part. Yeah, the I mean, and that's, is, the, that's the thing. UGA is, is unlike any other. They have 
four backs returning with an 80-plus rushing grade, and that doesn't even include Kendall Milton, who might be one, you know, the best one of all of them. And you know, so they that you know, the most in the rest of the SEC is two with A and M, and then uh, Bama. Everybody else is one or zero. So the depth they have returning is borderline not fair. It's and it's crazy to look at too when you do the ignore snap minimum thing, which I'll do every once in a while on PFF, and I'll look at some of the grades just to see, you know, kind of how how certain guys are stacking up. And you're right, like the you know the Edwards and the Milton stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, these guys these guys graded out higher than than James Cook and Samir White, which I, I think that that's telling in itself. And those guys now, of course, they want a bigger piece of the pie and they want to be able to get in there, but. James Cook, you know, he, along with Anaya Smith and Tyler Beatty, those guys are all kind of in these hybrid roles where they're probably never going to be like the top of the scouting report, but they're such unique weapons in their own way. And I know Smith is, is expected to kind of kick back out to more of that slot receiver role. A-Chain has solidified himself as the true, like, kind of number two back to be able to rotate with Spiller there. But th- does it feel like SEC teams are getting more creative with their usage of guys like this? Very much so. I think just the SEC offenses in general every year are getting better. And they're, they're evolving to sort of what today's college football looks like and should look like. Now, Alabama, to me, is the one that has done the best job of being both physical yet explosive in an analytically sort of sound way with the way they use play action, the way they use RPOs. But every offense is just getting better. And, you know, you talk about Anai Smith at A&M. He, to me, is Kadarius Tony 2.0 this year. And Mm. that sort of lightning rod in the slot for them. But Cook, you, you saw it, his, and him even more so, got better in the, as the year went along, actually starting to you know, force some missed tackles in the running game, which he hadn't done a lot of uh, up to this point in his career. He's just been truly a, a speed guy. But his ability as a receiver, he caught 16 of 19 targets, over 200 yards receiving. You're going to see that more and more, I think, with, uh, with Todd Monken in year two and just finding ways to use him. I think the challenge, like when you think specifically with Georgia, the challenge for Georgia will be, can your offense look the same no matter who's on the field? You know, is it, oh, Cook's in the game, all right, we're we're running some form of bubble screen, something like this, or Milton's in the game, we're definitely going inside zone here. Can you be sort of a non-predictable and really put any of them in the game and run the complete uh, entirety of your offense. I think they tried to do that a little bit with Zamir White, and it just wasn't quite the same. When Cook's out there, it's just different, and he's just a different sort of weapon. But some of the some of the usage numbers with the passing snaps that he would play, I know were were a bit higher than even what I realized. But then you kind of look at, all right, well, he wasn't necessarily being targeted in the same sort of manner. But I, I think that that's such a unique thing to follow. And even as teams like Kentucky, where Kentucky now with Liam Cohen, they're going to be running all this 12 personnel, and they're going to be doing things differently than what we've come to expect. And they get a, a weapon like a Wandale Robinson, which all of a sudden you can do more things, and you can have that personnel that's still on the field without needing to reinvent the wheel and not necessarily tipping your hand. And that's why, you know, this isn't a running back thing, but that's why I love a guy like Jalen Weidermeyer, who Weidermeyer, for those who don't know, Texas A&M tight end, who I've hyped up a lot and think he's the best returning tight end in all of college football. I love the fact that that guy never has to leave the field. And even at the end of the game, when they're trying to get things going in the running game and they're 
trying to run off the clock against UNC, he's out there because of how good of a blocker he is and getting these guys who are more and more versatile. I think that helps a team like A&M especially where like, okay, so Isaiah Spiller, he didn't grade out nearly as well as I thought he would, but he's an interesting case where the raw numbers look really, really good. And I thought he made some pretty notable, notable strides last year in the running game and in the passing game. But, and everybody remembers the Florida run, of course, but I, I was impressed with his ability to just sort of grind away. You know, you get like the Auburn game where he didn't have a run longer than 15 yards in that game, but his role and what he did to help AM control the time of possession was so huge. What do you make of the year that he had behind what was a really, really good offensive line? Because as much as I wanted to defer to some of the, the grades and the usage, it's, it's also hard not to side with a junior who's already got those 2,000 yard seasons and say that, oh, this guy isn't worthy of being a first team all SEC back. So what do you kind of make of, of Spiller and the way that they want to use him in Jimbo Fisher's offense? I think he is perfect for their offense. And I think the combination of him and a chain are, are perfect together. Because, I mean, it really is kind of a true thunder lightning type dynamic. But, uh, you know, Spiller is one, like, he's still he's leading the league. Now, granted, his usage, like you said, was a little higher than most, but he's still the returning top back in terms of number of 10 plus yard runs. And that to me is whether it's, you know, he, I think he was about 63% yards uh, after contact, but still yet that to me is the consistency when you're getting consistent double digit yard runs and continually moving the chains, not being brought down by that first, first guy, you are going to be there. And his size, the size speaks for itself. Big guy. I think him and, uh, Devin a change like those two, like that to me might be the best tandem returning mm. in the league. Georgia fans everywhere just threw down their phones in disgust. They say, How dare you? How can you say that? Alabama fans are like, How dare you say that Brian Robinson and Trey Sanders aren't the best duo? Although Trey Sanders being hurt as much as he's been or so far in his career, I don't think you could really make a good argument for that. But you know, you talk about A Chain, and A Chain is a guy who down the stretch he just took off and he was so fun to watch and everybody knows the big play against UNC, but I mean, he was doing things earlier on and I think it was the Arkansas game where all of a sudden you're just like, who is this kid? Cause he is, he is so right. special. And I think that was such a hard backfield to emerge in, but you know, you could also probably look at the depth like we talked about with Georgia, with Edwards and McIntosh as well. Those were the two guys that they had graded out higher than, than Cook and White. So, you know, the way that you look at those two backfields, I feel like we've already kind of talked enough about those specifically. Who's the, the, the SEC team that you look at and say, we could be putting this team in the conversation with those two by season's end with, in, with their backfield and say, wow, this is a team that really has like three dudes who can take over in a given game and you feel like you're, you're really confident. You're not necessarily sweating if one of them gets hurt. Well, Alabama's the, the I think, the obvious answer to that one. Because, yeah. you know, Robinson has been there and has always graded out well, has always run well. I mean, he has a, like, a, him wearing number four, he has kind of like a Tracer Mon, like, vibe to him with the way he runs. And, you know, where he just bounces off of people, continually, you know, gets yards after contact. Now, the interesting thing for Bama, to me, this year, is I think he's going to be that running threat. And I think, you know, you got McClellan, you got Sanders, possibly even the five-star freshman Cam Wheaton. Wheaton. So, you know, who knows with how that shakes out. But what's interesting for Bama to me this year will be if they can find someone who then also replaces Najee's production as a receiver. Because that was the level that he took that makes him, to me, a 
lightly late first round, top of the second round pick. Even though I'm still very much of the anti-running back until later in the draft, but still yet someone's going to take him in the later part of the first round or the top of the second. And it's because of his evolution as a receiver. I think Najee last year was 43 receptions, over 400 yards receiving, and it wasn't anyone else. So who who once they get someone to one, I think Robinson will be there from a running perspective, but does he provide the receiving threat or is it someone else? And once you get to that, then I think you'll see Bama. Plus you have a quarterback now, a true running threat quarterback for them uh, with Bryce Young. So, you know, their offense might look completely different than it, than it did a year ago. Okay, but you can be honest with me here. When you sign a contract to work for Pro Football Focus, they make you sign some sort of agreement wherein you'll say at least one point in every single interview that running backs in the first round, we can't do it. We gotta, we need to make sure that we bang the drum for that. I mean, that that's in there, right? Like we can just assume that at this point, can't we? Uh, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say it is because we still have a lot of mock drafts that put uh, put running backs in there because we know we know teams are going to do it. Fair enough. We, Fair I enough. Mean, it's, okay. It, it's it, it, there's just too much evidence to the contrary that you know it is that 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 is a thing and that you can replace you know re, the the replacement level part of that. Uh, but here's the key: at the college level, it's not the same magnitude that it is in the NFL. True. Like the college True. level, Very the back, you know, there's still because you're 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 talking about a lot of times six seven yards per carry type averages. The, the value of the back at the college level is slightly higher, and it's not quite the replacement type thing that you look at in the NFL level. And it makes sense, too, the whole, like, oh, everybody, you know, you have your four years of eligibility, and then you're gone. You're not necessarily worrying about the diminishing return the same way that you are in the NFL. I get you. I get you. I'm just busting chops right. a little bit. <laughs> um, I know. A couple months ago. All good. You, uh, so, so you gave me um, some great numbers on Chris Rodriguez for a story that I was working on. Like it was 468 of his 765 yards were after first contact. He averaged 3.93 yards after first contact per attempt, and then he forced 31 tackles on just 119 carries. No returning running back in all of college football had a better 2020 grade than C-Rod. I've been saying that more people need to be talking about him because I think even in this new offense with Liam Cohen, he's going to get a lot of run. He's not necessarily going to see the same sort of loaded boxes. He's going to still see a lot of them, but maybe not quite as much if they're able to scheme some of these guys open. Where does he rank among SEC backs returning for you? Top two, top three. I mean, he's up there. He's that, he's that good. He's that efficient because, and that's the key. He's that efficient. He, he, in terms of the league, just the league itself, this last year, not just returning, he was number one in terms of percentage of carries for a first down or a touchdown. So when you're giving him the ball, and it was like 41%, I think. When you're giving him the ball, your efficiency is just high. It's, it's up there. You're not – he's not getting negative plays. And what's going to be interesting with Kentucky and, you know, your doppelganger offensive coordinator that they have uh, on board <laughs> now uh, is how – like, did they fully go into the, you know, Rams-McVay type system where – the Rams this past year number, were number three in the league in out, percentage of outside zone. And the outside zone bootleg type game, does that become Kentucky's offense? Or do they you know, still do what they've kind of done in the past, shotgun, power? You know. Kevin Harris, he's kind of in that similar camp 
as Chris Rodriguez, where I feel like those who watch the SEC closely, they, they know how good he is, but nationally speaking, I think if you told the average person, oh yeah, this, is, this guy had more rushing yards than all but one dude in college football in terms of returning backs, and it's Brees Hall, of course, should we be banging the drum for him, or is him not showing up on some of these preseason lists of top returning backs, is that justified? Uh, I think you should be banging a drum, but what will be interesting for him this year is how much help he has. And because you get Marshawn Lloyd, who was supposed to be that explosive, you know, young guy for them back from ACL, if he can actually give something to them and give give him a little bit of a another threat and give them another threat offensively because they lost their other main threat offensively in Shy Smith. So as long as I think he has help, he's going to have – and again, he's as good as they can in terms of being able to pull and get yardage on his own. I love the way that Jerry Neely was used in the Ole Miss offense last year. I, I thought that they did such a great job, Jeff Levy and Lane Kiffin, of of really making sure that he was in a variety of spots. And the usage is never going to be as high as some of the other guys are. He's just not necessarily built that same way. But we got to really kind of see what it would look like when he didn't have the loaded boxes and the offense actually had some balance to it. I'll be honest, though, whenever I think about the elite returning backs in the SEC, he's not the first name. He's not the second name. He's probably not even the third name that I immediately think of. But at the same time, the guy had a better running grade than Tank, and he had a better receiving grade than James Cook. So where does where does Jerry and Ely fall in this in this group for you? Should he be near the top, or is he like when we name those seven, he's a little bit more on the back end for you? I would say he's a little bit more on the back end because of the, the, the physical dynamics, but also he's so helped and plays such a great offense. And such a uniquely and well-designed offense. But I will say that when you look at him specifically, just this past season alone, he only had two great games out of out of all of the season that he wasn't at least at seventy or above. And mm. you know that's a, that's kind of a line of demarcation for us in terms of you, know, you start getting to the seventies, you start talking about above-average starters and, and high-quality players. And only with only two individual games where he's not wasn't above 70 that's just the level of consistency from him is was unmatched really amongst any of the sec running backs because outside of possibly Najee. so you know it's that plus the offense he's going to be there and he's going to be someone who's giving them production consistently week in and week out if i'm asking you to predict how you think that the first and second team all sec running backs shake out at season's end what is what does that look like for you because I guess that's basically me asking you of projecting what you think the top four backs in the league are, are going to be, and you can factor in everything. It doesn't necessarily have to just be, you know, what is was a guy done in years past. But at the end of the year, when we come out with those the first team and the second team all SEC backs, what do you think that looks like? I think it's probably Spiller and Bigsby, and then Chris Rodriguez and Brian Robinson. I think the the Multiple the five backs that Georgia has in, in its you know its disposal will you know obviously kind of diminishing return not diminishing returns but diminish the individualized nature of somebody's stats to where you know you have you know a bunch of guys with seventy five plus carries or you know in that realm so I just I don't see them individually getting enough to be on an all SEC type team uh, so that's why I would go with those four. 
Brian, great stuff, man. Everyone go check out his work on Pro Football Focus as well as UGASports.com and Canesport.com. Thanks again, man. Talk soon. Appreciate it. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Memphis defensive coordinator Mike McIntyre. Mike, of course, was the Ole Miss defensive coordinator in 2019, and then he was also head coach at Colorado and had about a billion other coaching jobs before that. Mike, I was going through it. You've had, by my count, I think 14 coaching jobs in 12 different places, including just like, you know, casually coaching a German football team as a guy in his late 20s. I'm guessing you don't do the whole like single spaced one page resume thing anymore, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. I, <laughs> that's, that's funny, but we've had a great opportunities in a lot of different places and been able to see a lot of the a lot of the country and meet a, and make a lot of great friends and uh it's been it's been a great journey it really has i know we're a little less than six months away from this but explain the, this process to me so you, you've got a matchup with mississippi state this year that's on a 2021 schedule for memphis and not to overlook either of your first two opponents or say that you're looking past them but, but honestly when does that scouting process begin for Leach's air raid, because it's obviously like the total opposite of this from a style standpoint, but I imagine there's got to be some of those similarities to playing like a service academy, just with how unique that prep is. Yes, it's, it's very unique. Uh, speaking of the Naval Academy, we also play Navy, and so we'll we'll actually kind of work on both of those teams and their 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 person what they kind of do offensive philosophy in the spring a little bit, um, and kind of give our kids a touch of it a little bit, and then we'll also have days in fall camp when we specifically work on that. And it all carries over to the other teams because some teams run a little bit of option in their schemes. Some teams run, you know, the four wide passing game and all the mesh routes. So it does carry over, but theirs is so specific and how they do it. Um, if you just wait to the week of the game to do it, it could be a long day. I had this theory that last year with workout shut down during the spring, you know, offensive coordinators, it seemed like they just spent an absurd amount of time watching film and scheming up these unique looks that put pressure on defenses in a different sort of way. And I know at, at a lot of places you, you couldn't even really afford to have everyone go live because of roster depth with contact tracing, all that stuff. I actually thought that the defenses who didn't take a massive step back last year in 2020, that they deserved a massive pat on the back because that was probably not easy to have to react to that. This might come off as a little bit basic, but how unique of a challenge was it to coach defense last year? Uh, it was really a unique challenge, especially when we had come here and it was our first year trying to install everything. Um, and I, I, like with our defense, early in the year we were okay, had a couple bad games to be honest, and then the last half of the year we were really good. And our kids started understanding all the different things, understand why we did the drills we did, understand where their eyes would go. Um, they were more comfortable. They were good in their checks. And um, I think that definitely – um, the offenses were, uh, as you saw last year, were clicking. And the game is geared more to offense. Um, you know, with linemen being able to go downfield, you can still throw it with all the different playing fast and all the things that they're doing. Um, and you can't, you know, receivers being able not to really touch them much downfield, it, it makes a big difference. And it's a it's a game that, uh, you know, offenses need to score, score some points because the fans like to watch that. TV likes to see that. Uh, but as a defensive coordinator, you don't like to see that very often at all. <laughs> yeah, the game. One of the games that you, you know you probably are, are thinking about, even though it's a game that you guys won, 
the, the game against UCF where you have to game plan and face Josh Leipel's offense, unreal game to be able to watch. The ending was incredible. It was like 50 to 49 or whatever that was. But right. um, I, I'm sure obviously you would have rather it been, you know, like 17, 16 or something like that. And you would have rather had a better defensive performance on your end. But what should Tennessee fans, really SEC fans, know about the way that Josh Heupel runs his offense? Well, they're a high-tempo offense. It's it's the uh, Baylor offense. It goes back to um, the Coach Browles days at Baylor. It's exactly what it is. And uh, they play at extremely fast pace. Um, it's exactly the same offense that kind of Ole Miss runs in a lot of ways. Um, and so uh, it's a high-pass offense. They're going to you know, they're going to single out certain receivers and they run, they have, they have read routes. They run on your coverage or run on your technique. Uh, and they play extremely fast. Um, until you play them one time, you don't realize how fast they play. I don't know how fast he'll be able to get it going quickly at Tennessee because their offense has got to get used to playing that fast and operating and functioning. But the speed of the game and of how quick they snap the ball, um, gets the offense, gets the defenses a little bit, um, off kilter. And what happens is it's not that they don't really get lined up right. Their eyes are in the wrong place. And all of a sudden the ball's past you or the receiver's past you or the running back's past you. Um, that's the key. And uh, how you practice for that is, is critical. Yeah, it seems like the, the deep shots that they take, as much as we think that there's downfield passing in this day and age, and everybody wants to be able to stretch the field and it feels like your offense is just so limited if you don't have a quarterback that can do that. With Heupel, it just it feels like it's on a different level with the amount of home run chances they take. Is, is that a fair thing to say about his offense, that even in this era that we are so used to seeing the downfield passing, that he kind of takes it to a different level? Oh, yeah, they do. They take um, – I want to say they try to take about 25 shots a game, little, little shots. Um, and, you know, the way they do that, too, is, you know, they've got a system where if you watch them play and say they're in a four-wide look, two of the receivers are actually run routes. The two other receivers are just walking. And the reason they're doing that is because they're going to send them deep in a couple plays. And then your DBs are having to run to the ball. They're having to execute. They get run off. They get tired. Um, so it's also a, a battle of um, uh, conditioning in their games. And uh, they want to be able to run a certain amount of plays also. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a fast-paced fast game, no doubt about it. I want to go back to that 2016 season that you had at Colorado. I, I remember watching that game that you guys lost against a, a top five Michigan team in Ann Arbor and thinking that Jim Harbaugh, he got away with one because you guys lose your starting quarterback and the game just totally flips. But you still, that year, kind of come out of nowhere and you guys win double-digit games. You were basically the unanimous national coach of the year. You signed that new deal to stay at Colorado. You get to coach your son, Jay. And he, even though that year didn't end up kind of like you hope with, with the finish. Did you have a moment where after 25 plus years in the business where you said to yourself, wow, I, I'm living my dream right now? Yes, I, uh, I basically am living my dream almost every day. Um, you know, there's some days you like better than others, of course, but you know, that year was a special, special year. Um, and, uh, the way we ended in the, the regular season, um, you know, beating Washington State and Utah back to back there to win the Pac-12 South, and uh, it was an exciting year. And watching the, the the most fulfilling part I had of it was all those young men that were that were juniors and seniors on that team. Um, you know, we had a rough start, and our, the program when we got there was you know 
um, dismal. They they were, I think the year before we got there, they were getting beat 55 to seven by Fresno at halftime, um, and they just were not a very good program at all. And all those young men played as youngsters, and and they lost some hard games. And those they came back and won those games in their juniors and senior years, and um, it was so fulfilling to watch that and to watch uh, Philip Lindsay and and Seth Olufal and Cheeto Bayawuzi and all those young men. Uh, accomplish the goals that they did was exciting to watch. Take me uh, what take me through 2018 and what that's like because nobody ever sees that coming and especially you know even someone who's been in the business as long as you have you know you sign that new deal and Boulder seems like just such a great place to be able to settle down and just kind of you know have this this long term life that you've probably always envisioned. But, you know, you have 2018 where you, you guys have the six-game losing streak and you get fired roughly two years removed from being on that high of 2016. And I think a lot of people in that spot would say, you know what, I'm going to sit out, I'm going I'm to just sit on this buyout, maybe spend a year off, move on. But you get a call from Matt Luke and decide that you want to move to the southeast and take over an Ole Miss defense that was just absolutely horrendous in 2018 before you arrived. Explain how Luke approached you and why you wanted to take that challenge on because it was super unique to see him go like, hey, I'm going to hire a couple of Power 5 head coaches basically to be in these coordinator roles for him. Yeah, you know, the the 2018 season at um, Colorado was, um, I would say, hot and and cold, you know, we go five and zero, and we're ranked 18th in the country, and then we get a bunch of injuries and and lose some games there at the end. And and the way our business is, uh, it happens in our business. And I I love coaching young people. I, I love um, working with young men and helping them grow into them from boys into men. And and uh, I love the competition of the game. And um, so I was, uh, you know, got let go and was sitting there and. And Matt Luke calls me, and um, I, I've known Matt. Matt and I had coached together um, two other times at Ole Miss at one time and at Duke. Um, knew Matt really well, think the world of him. Um, and uh, we loved our time at Ole Miss when we were there with Coach Cutcliffe before. And so he called, and I said, yeah, uh, we, I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And after a week or so, decided I would go help Matt because I think so much of him, and we loved Oxford, we loved Ole Miss, and uh, went there and – those young men responded, and, and we improved drastically on defense that year. It just didn't end the way we'd like it to. Um, but I, I really enjoyed um, working for Matt and, and being there at Ole Miss at that time. Last year, I kept comparing uh, I kept comparing Barry Odom to you because I thought there were a lot of similarities with the the dynamics of you know where Barry took over that Arkansas defense that needed just a ton of help, and I remember thinking that it was really going to benefit him to be able to just focus in on coaching up one side of the ball. You don't have to worry about all the extra things that come with being a, the face of the program and at a Power Five program. It's just such a, a big deal. All the extra things that you have to deal with. Did you feel that sort of renewed back to your roots sense right when you got to Ole Miss? Uh, yes, I think when you get out there, you kind of get in the in the the grind, so to speak. Everybody talks about as a as a head football coach, your grind every day. There's something new. It's you know you're putting out fires or all that. You know I could go in there and just work on defense and and dive into the defensive staff and then meet with the DBs and and meet with the defense and just really dive into them and just you know just do the football aspect of it. Do the um, dealing with the kids and different situations they have because you have all that time to do that. 
so that was refreshing. It was, um, you know, fun. Matt would come down and say, hey, I need to talk to you a second. I got this issue. I got this issue. What do you think? I'd give my two cents, and I said, hey, you got to go make that decision now. I'm going back. <laughs> so it, it, was, um, it, was, uh, it was fun, um, and it was rejuvenating in that aspect of it. Um, but, you know, I've always loved being a head coach also, so hopefully I'll get that opportunity again in the future. But at that time, I thought it was a real refreshing thing for me to do, and and to dive in. And a lot of people did call me and say, why didn't you just sit out? I said, well, you only get so many chances to coach. You only get so many chances to do it. And, and I love working with young people and I love the competition of football. You got to see the emergence of uh, John Rice Plumley, who, you know, I love watching him. And that was so fun just to kind of see some of the things that he was able to put out there in 2019. Is, is there a John Rice Plumley story that stands out to you? Wow. You know, John Rice is, um, you know, he is a phenomenal young man, and he is so talented. I don't think anybody realizes how talented he is. I mean, he can sing, he can play a guitar, he can play a piano, oh, yeah. he can he can run like the wind, he can catch a baseball, he can run the option, he can throw it. Um, he has charisma; it just oozes off of him. You know, he's the kind of guy that you could see being the governor one day and, and just having everybody in the palm of their hand. I mean, he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. Um, and uh, there's really nothing that I don't think he could do um, and or he believes he couldn't do. And he's a confident young man, but I wouldn't say he's cocky at all. He just understands um, who he is and he, he's, he's very comfortable in his own skin. Gosh, defending that guy every day. I mean, talk about gap discipline. I, I saw LSU with all those future pros struggle with it. That, that had to make your defense better, though, right? Like just chasing that guy around and all the gap discipline you probably had to preach. Just to, and I know you can't tackle, but still, I mean, that was probably just such a unique challenge in itself. Yeah, it was. And then, and then you know, the thing that it helped us also too, his speed, it helped us realize the speed and our angles and everything that we had to take on defense. You know, it helps you in that area also. You know, it, kind of like iron sharpens iron and he was able to to help us especially improve our run defense um and understanding that all right rich rod is there a rich rod story that stands out because i've, I've heard a couple of myself um not don't want to repeat the exact language used for these airwaves but um i got to imagine when you share you know you share a locker room with that guy he's he's a very unique personality and he came out kind of and we would see the little clips that go the go to the booth and he's you know blowing a gasket he's a fiery guy that's no secret but was is there maybe a side to him that we didn't necessarily see or something that kind of stands out from your time with him uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I've known Rich Rod for a long time, and then we knew each other as head coaches really well at all the head coaches meetings in the Pac-12 and different things we did, and our wives knew each other and, and everything. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Rich Rod really cares about his family. He really cares about um, kids. Um, you know, he I'll tell you one thing that he does, because he wants to, people to know him, to get to know him besides just the fieriness on the field. Um, he has a big box of candy in his office so anybody can come by and get candy and he does that on purpose because people come by and get candy and then he can talk to them and uh and he can joke with them and um and and they can get to see his um his personality on that side and how he his smile and his sense of humor and uh so um he's not all bite there's a little softness in there i promise you um but uh he, he was really good to work with 
the sweet side, the salty side. I totally get that. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, you, you totally turn around the Ole Miss defense and, and beyond just the, the just the numbers, you could watch that team and you could see the year-to-year difference. And then, of course, as we you know you brought up earlier, the way that it ended, Luke gets fired, Lane comes in, and I know you're happy at Memphis now and you can go into whatever detail you want with this, but I, I remember it was first reported that you were going to be staying and then it was reported that you weren't. How close were you to joining that that new staff at Ole Miss? I I really don't know to be honest with you. <laughs> um, you know, it's, and I and that's the way it goes. I mean, Lane came in. Lane's a heck of a coach and wants to get you know their own guys in there. I understand that. Um, and uh, um, you know, but Ole Miss was a place we loved and and thought we were doing you know we were doing a good job with. But uh, I wasn't um, surprised either way if I would have stayed or if he wanted me to stay or he wanted me to, to, to go to get his own people in there. I didn't take any of that personal. I knew the job that um, we had done and knew the job I could do and was very excited about, um, you know, I had a lot of other opportunities to go other places, um, and we chose to come here to Memphis and wanted to stay in the South and loved uh, our, our hometowns and is Nashville, so all our families there. So it's really been exciting being here at Memphis and, They've got a great program and um, one that um, that wins a lot of football games and uh, one that has a lot of uh, a lot of heart. And uh, Memphis is a good place. You uh, you were the interim coach during that time too, and, and I remember reading uh, about the players only or the players meeting that they had with Keith Carter, and and there were there was expected to be this mass exodus. How in the world did you approach that? Because there are so many moving pieces when something like that is going on. And like you said, I mean, you don't even know what your future is going to hold there, but I got to imagine that was kind of unlike anything you had ever experienced before. And just kind of the, the changing of the guard and, and all that was up in the air. Yes. You know, the, the first thing, if you're a college football coach, um, you better love kids and, and, and you better also uh, know that you have their best interest at heart and the best interest at heart for the young men at that time um, when changes like that happen, kids are human. Okay, they hear all kind of things. They're getting they're getting words of wisdom from everywhere, from every avenue you can imagine. A lot of it comes over their phone, which isn't a lot of that's not good. And so, or or blogs or different things. And so, the main thing you want them to do is not to get depressed and check out on school. You know, skip out and leave and miss classes. You know, get themselves in a situation situation where academically they they can't stay they can't even stay in college and that that can that happens so my first and foremost thought with the staff and um with myself and every all the auxiliary people in the the building was to make sure we were on top of all of that that they were going to class they were taking care of their academics they were doing their study hall um they were doing the right thing they were doing the right things off the field to so when they whoever the new coach came in all those young men had the opportunity to stay and then that gave them a chance to do that. And then if they didn't want to stay, they, they had an opportunity to leave because they were academically sound. So it was all looking out for the individual. And then when whoever came in, they could figure that out um, if they wanted to stay or, or leave. And, uh, you know, Oxford's a great place. It's a super place to go to school. It really is. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to coach. So I basically knew if all those kids just kept their academics straight, did what they're supposed to, that most all of them would stay. Um, it's just a unique, new, unique place. It seems like um, in this day and age, and you know, maybe Lane kind of being being part of that, 
it seems like everyone wants to get the offensive-minded head coach now, and it's because of this emphasis on calling plays, the way that the game is set up, as you bring up before, you know, where, where now it just feels like everything is sort of catered to the offense. When you hear people like Nick Saban talking about how much different offense is and how adapting to that has fueled Alabama's success, we're, we're definitely living in a different world now than we were 10 years ago. How, how have you had to evolve some of your defensive philosophies knowing that those 17 to 14 games, that's just not a realistic bar to set anymore. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's it's all about points, okay? It's all about points. We came in third this year in the AAC in points, um, but it's all about points. If you get worried about first downs or yardage some, um, where we used to always, you know, the, the, criti- the critique that most people go by is yardage, right? When they talk about the defense or offense yardage. They shouldn't talk about that. All they should talk about is points, offensively or defensively, because that's all that matters in winning games. You know, I always laugh in basketball. They don't talk about how many um, yards they gained in basketball up and down the court. All they talk about is how many points they scored. So why don't you do that in football? It, it makes no sense. Um, and so I know they equate yardage sometimes to points, which that's true, but not really in today's college football because teams are going to move the football. It's how you play in the red zone. It's how you keep points away. It's how you um, are able to play on fourth down, third down, and fourth down now. That's all changed because you didn't used to play fourth downs like you do now. Teams didn't used to run the ball on third down expecting to go for it on fourth down. The people in the crowd be booing them. Now they're like, why are you even punting? And so I think <laughs> that that's all changed. So it's all about points. And you're going to give up more Here. points than 14 or 17, but it's all about points. And you're, you're in the conference that, I mean – the AAC is like essentially the the Big Twelve version of you know that that's that in the group of five or at least it feels like that right. where right. everybody scores and it's so weird to see the Tulsas of the world who Tulsa is was super defensive focused last year in the way that they restricted you how 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 unique was that experience in itself because you know going from conference to conference and you've seen a lot but where it just seems like everybody in that league is going to open it up and they're going to want to attack in a different sort of way how, how unique was just just adapting to such a different philosophy than what you've probably been you know surrounded by throughout your career right it, it, it's definitely an offensive league i think somebody said we played the 21st hardest offensive um schedule in america last year and uh and that all predicated on points i think that uh you know, the thing that's hard for a defensive coordinator in college football um, compared to pro football is how different all the offenses are and how offensive-minded all the offenses are. Um, so, you know, you'll go from playing the, uh, a Navy offense to playing a um, run-oriented quarterback spread offense to a passing offense um, and, and, you know, quarterback reading everything and to a team that's taken 26 shots a game deep. It's just every week is so different. Um, and so you have to be adaptive. I, I, I saw something where Coach Saban said when they were playing Notre Dame, that you know, just didn't stay in nickel and try to say something. You had to match personnel. Uh, and you do have to match personnel. The hard thing in today's world is sometimes teams don't let you match personnel. Um, they're going so fast, and, they're, um, and that help, makes it tough. But it's it's a it's a very really tough business as far as being able week in week out. Um, it's totally different week in week out. You've uh, you know you said you said here a few minutes ago, and I know you said it before that that you want to become a head coach again. And I know you had the opportunity to take 
the uh, the Austin P gig at last year, but the, the timing of that was really weird. They needed someone mid-season. Um, just the way that their season shook out was bizarre and obviously really COVID-related as well. Kind of piggybacking on that, that the previous question, though, do you get the sense that the defensive-minded head coaches are sort of being slighted now for these head coaching jobs? I, I think that sometimes the, uh, the glamour side of it is what people are looking for a little bit. But, you know, when you really look, I mean, I've heard somebody say this before, you know, if you would say the two best coaches in football are Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, you know, they're defensive guys. And they all have good offenses, too. You know, I know that Belichick and them struggled a little bit last year. But, I mean, when you look over the course of their careers, they're the best coaches. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad was a, a defensive coach who then when he became a, a college head coach, he, you know, helped him with the offense and did that type of thing. I think it's just the way it is right now. It always goes in cycles, it seems like. Um, it, it always seems like it goes in cycles. And I think that's the same way um, this is. And uh, But I think if you're a good football coach, you're a good football coach, no matter if you're an offensive guy or defensive guy. I've got five rapid-fire questions to close here. Just first thing that comes to mind. And, and I guess they don't really have to be rapid-fire. If you've got something that you want to go into, that's perfectly fine. It can be one word or it can be 10 minutes. doesn't really matter to me. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Perfect. All right, first one. Crazier experience. The Egg Bowl or being on Bill Parcell's staff with the Cowboys? Uh, the Egg Bowl. <laughs> the Egg Bowl. I've been in so many of those. <laughs> the competition level, the, 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 really the hatred in that rival is amazing. It, and it's a, it's a fun game to be a part of, but it is really, really intense. Take that, NFL crowd. Yeah, you heard it here first. Um, more terrifying mascot with a head of steam, Ralphie or Landshark Tony? <laughs> Uh, Ralphie, so my first game as the head coach at Colorado at home, we played at Denver the first game, we are coming out, and the person, and then we're in the tunnel, and the person tells me, go one, two, three, go. So I bring the team out, and Ralphie is not out of the cage, and Ralphie's looking me eye to eye with the cage open, and I go, I'm going to die. And uh, um, our players are going, coach, run, run, run. So we started running. Luckily, they taught Ralphie, don't run if somebody's in front of you. And so she stopped. We ran out. The fans booed, and Ralphie didn't run. And I'm like, and our guys, we like jumped off sides the first time. We were all rattled. So after the game, I asked Dave Platty, I said, when did that ever happen before? He said, one other time. I said, what was that? When they beat Nebraska 62 to 36. I said, well, we don't need to have Ralphie run very often because we won that game too. So, but no, <laughs> Ralphie is a scary, scary, scary animal when she's running, but she's a beautiful mascot. That's to me, that's the best mascot in the country when you see her run in person. It's really amazing. Oh, my gosh. To have the fear of death after looking at <laughs> Ralphie's eyes. <laughs> that's a baptism by fire if I've ever heard it. From then on, I never ran out until I saw the back of Ralphie. And then I took the team Oh, out. yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that's a, that's a wise choice. That's a business decision. That's You don't want to go viral for that. That is a very, very smart move. Um, Best offensive player you ever had to game plan against, and it can be at any level. Wow, that's a really hard question because we've gone against so many good ones. Um, but I, I know he just won the Heisman, but Devontae Smith, when I was at Ole Miss, um, he was like the fourth-team receiver in 2018, if you kind of remember. They had all those guys. And we were worried about all the other ones, and sure enough, I think he had four or five touchdowns in our game. We couldn't even touch him. He, I said, 
I saw him in pregame. I said, God, he's little. We couldn't even touch him. So I would say Devontae Smith that day. And I didn't. nobody realized how really good he was. I mean, he was in 2018. I think he was a sophomore or whatever and freshman, and he was amazing. Best uh, best offensive coach you ever had to game plan against at any level. So same question, but this can be this can be NFL, and I know some like it's a little bit different if you're you know not in that defensive coordinator role. But I, I would I would count that. So like days at Dallas can be can be part of that as well. Wow, that's a really really hard one. Um, mm, mm. I'm trying to. I mean, I've gone against so many good so many good ones. Um, I don't know if I can answer that. I mean, there's so many good, um, uh, so many good offensive coordinators we've gone against. Uh, uh, Twenty nine Sarkeesian seems Twenty nine Sarkeesian seems like really, really difficult with Tua, and like you just brought up with Devontae. I mean, you just it seemed like right. it was impossible to touch him at that point. Yeah, that they, would probably they were, have to they, were they, they were phenomenal. I mean, um, you know, Burrow and those guys were great that year. Um, they were they were they were really really good. USC had some phenomenal teams um, too, um, but uh, I, I you know I mean those were the best. Those you know the, but yeah, 2019 when we played LSU with Burrow and we played um, with Tua, those offenses were um, both those offenses were phenomenal. Real quick sidebar: the 2019 LSU game. I know that as a defensive-minded guy, I mean that you had to just be pulling your hair out watching that. And what you—that's one of those games where you turn on the film afterwards. And you're like, "What in the world is going on?" Let me just say, as a as a consumer of football, I loved every second of it, <laughs> and I'm sure that every reason why I loved it, you probably hated it. Did you just burn the film after that one? Like, do you even watch that afterwards? <laughs> no, we watched it. We watched it and. That, you know, the thing that was amazing, like that game and the Alabama game, is we were in position to to, to make a lot of plays. They yeah. just executed really, really well, and their athletes were really, really good in space. I mean, um, and, you know, we're, we're, they just made some plays on you. Um, it wasn't like we were out-schemed or whatever. They just made plays, and they did that all year. And then when they did it against each other, you're like, okay, it, it, they're yeah. just that good. Uh, last one for you. Uh, best piece of advice that you would give the 23-year-old version of yourself when you started coaching? Best piece of advice I give the 23-year-old version of myself. Um, wow. I I think that uh, I think the best version I would I give myself is you know always be always be uh, true to yourself, always be true to the people you're around, and uh, I think if you do that which I feel like I've done um, throughout my career um, that you'll be able to be successful and you'll also make a lot of great friendships along the way. And you'll also make a lot of great influences along the way. And then you'll be able to help a lot of people. So I think that do um, just be true, just be true to who you are all the time. Mike, this has been great. Uh, I've been rooting for you for a bit now. Um, I always say I root for people in this business, and you are, you're certainly one of them, so I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Best of luck with, uh, with everything up there in Memphis this year. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Will, you know what I just realized? This is the Return of the Mac episode. Um, yeah, I talked about Mac Jones' draft stock. I talked about this year being return of the back with Pro Football Focus's Brent Rollins. 
And then I had an interview with Mike McIntyre. I have also listened to Return of the Mac like three times today. So um, yeah, this is the Return of the Mac episode. And anyway, that has nothing to do with figuring it out at all. It is, however, a little throwback to the 90s. So that's that kind of makes sense. Hulu did this like um, this 90s week theme. Lauren and I, as soon as we saw that, we're like, yep, that sounds like us. Have you seen uh, the Kid 90 doc that's out on Hulu right now? No. It's very interesting. It's um, it's Punky Brewster, who I like, that was, that was before my time, but it was basically like her documenting her life as a celebrity and she carried a video camera everywhere and she followed around all these celebrities and you know, a lot of them like got into drugs and stuff, but it's, Anyways, it's really, really crazy, but very, very good. It made me a little bit nostalgic for, for the 90s. But anyway, um, definitely should go watch that if you have not yet, anyone listening to this. But basically what that turned into, us seeing 90s Week on Hulu, was, oh, wait, hey, Arnold, we can watch the entire series through? Um, yeah, we're going to do that. So that's what we've been doing. Is Hey, Arnold a little bit before your time, Will? Oh, no. Hey, Arnold was definitely like that, that Apex Nick level. Apex Nick level. That's such a great way to put it. It's such a great way to put it. Harold holds up pretty well too. Um, like Helga and Harold, they need some serious therapy. No doubt about it. Mm. No doubt about it. A lot of issues they're working through, but the, the plots are good. Character development, it's all there. Int- it, it's like an entertaining, just kind of easy watch. Episodes are like 12 minutes because it's, it's the animated show thing where they do like two episodes in one. Um, and it's actually sort of kind of cool with the little like jazz that they have in the background. But it at the end of the day, it's still a Nickelodeon cartoon with a Y7 rating up in the corner. Um, but Lauren and I had this, this moment where we're kind of asking each other, is, should we be embarrassed by this? The fact that we're binge watching Hey Arnold and there's all this content that's available for us to watch and this is what we're picking because obviously we're on the wrong side of 30 now. And we also were wondering why we don't gravitate towards shows or movies that are like built for our demographic. We always kind of go for like the younger demographic. We've seen all the the Gen Z Noah Centineo movies on Netflix. Um, we've watched we watched Booksmart three times I think during the last year. We own Moana. We watch we own Moana and Frozen. We watch them way more than any thirty year olds without kids should watch <laughs> those movies. But they're really, really good. And we just, you know, it's like turn off the brain for a little bit. We actually watched about four seasons of Riverdale as well. Mm-hmm. That's I'm embarrassed by that one. I'm I'm admittedly embarrassed. Wait, so this is where one. you're that, embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a level of shame with 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 each one of those in a unique way, but I feel like Riverdale is really, really not our demographic. That show actually we stopped watching it. It got a little bit much for us. It was like One Tree Hill on Acid, I think. Um I don't need a show that's going to be talking about like a lizard king and cults and stuff like that. Not really my thing. Um, If it's yours, that's totally cool. That's fine. But anyway, the Hey Arnold thing was what got me thinking. What kid shows do we have no shame watching as adults? And also, is it just shame that makes us stop watching Nickelodeon shows? Like, At what point in our lives did we have this realization that we should be watching other things because it doesn't happen so sudden. One day you just realize I'm not watching Rocket Power and Rugrats anymore and that episode of Doug that I cared about, that no longer is, is a priority for me. Or do we actually like sort of grow up and say, yeah, I'm, I'm past this. Will, before we take it to the Facebook group, what are your thoughts on all of this? 
So I agree, and and I do the same thing that you do as far as like sometimes you just need to you know turn your brain off. I do that with SpongeBob, like that's on Amazon Ooh. Prime, and it's funny because like that was sort of like the like most serious debates me and Brittany got into is like she's like I don't think SpongeBob is like a top ten kids show. And I'm like how I couldn't even think of ten kids shows off the top of my head. Like how would you do that? But yeah, I think those are so. There's two shows right now that are kids shows that if I see them on, I will watch. Like no question. One SpongeBob. The other is um, Legends of the Hidden Temple. If I oh, see, all-time show. Yes. All-time show. If I see Legends of the Hidden Temple on, I will put it on and just actively root for them to solve the puzzles. Like, it's the most wholesome thing in the world. I'm a big Blue Barracuda guy myself. Right. Um, those kids are traumatized from that experience. There was an article that came out recently. I can't remember where it was from. But when those people in the temple come out and grab you when it's dark... Those kids are still dealing with those emotional scars. <laughs> I bet. And that's one of those things where like when you're watching it as a, a six-year-old or something like that, and you're wondering if it's really as scary when you're an adult. No, 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 no. That that thing would still freak me out if I had to go through that. I would scream out of terror at the top of my lungs if I was searching for something and someone just came out and grabbed me. They That would not work in 2021. I don't think you can do that. Oh yeah, and I think they're like unavoidable too, or at least some of them are. And it's like they're really setting these kids up for failure because they're making them like do physical stuff and do math and then ah. Oh gosh, no, no. Mm-mm. As cool as that show looked, and when, you know they're crossing, they're crossing like the what's the, always the water part in the beginning that they have to like get past, and that that part looks fun. If I got to the end, I would just be like, "Peace, I'm out of here. This is this is not for me. Can't do that." But yeah, Legends of the Hidden Temple was really good. I loved Guts back in the day. Mm-hmm. I have so many vivid memories as as a, like a four or five year old kid for whatever reason watching Guts on a late Sunday afternoon. Um, shout out to Mo. Wonder what Mo is up to these days. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that's a Google search for another time. Not gonna go into that. But all these shows that we watched as kids, and for those of us who like weren't necessarily children of the 90s or you know I'm sure like people had their specific shows in the 80s in a different sort of way but just when do we stop watching this and what what ages well what do we still what are we still able to kind of flip on and binge watch so Facebook group had a lot of great responses a lot of variety of perspectives here and again neither of us have kids so this is going to be a little bit different for those who have kids First response, Kobe Black, he has kids. I have a four-year-old and a five-month-old, and if you don't watch Bluey, you have failed as a parent. This is a popular response. Very, very popular response. I've only heard good things about Bluey. Jeff Jensen confirmed this. He said, Bluey is absolutely brilliant. My three-year-old loves it, and my wife and I can't help but laugh at the mom and dad characters and catch inside jokes only adults understand. I still watch old episodes of Hey Arnold, Doug, Rugrats, and Cat Dog when I stumble upon them on TV. They give me fond memories of my childhood. Okay, real quick on Bluey. That's hot in the streets right now. I'm not saying I'm about to go finish recording this podcast and then go watch an hour of this show. But if it happened this week, I wouldn't be surprised. Will, have you heard good things about this Bluey character? So I've honestly never heard of this. This is this is new to me. This is one of those things where if you have kids and you talk to other parents, this is probably one of those things that's just such an everyday part of conversation. But with us, it's like it's such a foreign world. So I, I need to do some research, and maybe I need to watch a couple episodes of Bluey to catch up to speed because when multiple people are responding, and I heard that before I even threw this question out there, so that's that's a very, very popular opinion. And it, 
The okay, so the second part of Jeff's response, I still watch old episodes of Hey Arnold, Doug, Rugrats, and Cat Dog. I never got into Cat Dog. The other three plus Rocket Power were like my big four right there. Hey Arnold, Doug, Rugrats, Rocket Power. Will were you were you like too old when or too young when Rugrats stopped airing episodes because I feel like for our generation, that kind of was, and again, I'm 30, born in 1990, that kind of like coincided perfectly with my childhood. Wow. I've never thought about that. So you're saying kind of like when we grow up is when Rugrats stopped airing. So, because I think when did, they came out with a movie in 98 or 99, something yep. like that. The All Grown Up movie. And yep. then, which that was a trip in itself. I was not on board for that. I don't need to see those kids growing up. They, there's. Chucky is supposed to be in diapers for life. Right. Chucky is not getting out of diapers. Um, Angelica, come on. You, 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 everybody knew what Angelica was going to turn into. We didn't necessarily need that whole, like, no. Um, but, yeah, that show, that show was pretty much what I watched ages 5 through 8, I think. And then, for whatever reason, maybe 5 through, like, 9. Right, right after the movie came out, I think I stopped watching. What about you? No, yeah, I'm right there with you. And, like, you're right. Like, they, they tried to, like, grow them up, and I was just out on that experience. And then, like, also, like, that second generation kind of came in behind them. Um, and that was, like, I want to say, like, Codename Kids Next Door and, like, that kind of stuff. Mm. That was, like, that was like my, like, true, like, childhood, like, uh, like Ed and Nettie and stuff. Like, Rugrats was almost, like, an, like, that was, like, the tail end of, like, the true 90s. Whereas, like, there was this whole other kind of, like, golden age that came in after them. It was almost like Nickelodeon had its time and then Cartoon Network kind of took that, yep. that over yep. a little bit. Because I was like Teen Titans, yep. Mm. That's Was Dragon Ball Z Cartoon Network? Yeah, so that was a whole other, that was like, um, I'm not, it wasn't Adult Sway, it was Toonami. That's what it was. Mm. Okay, okay. I, I was more of the Scooby-Doo variety. Scooby-Doo, yep. where are you? I watched that at an airport uh, about a year ago. Yeah, because I haven't been on a plane in a year. Um, but I watched that. And it, I was like sitting there locked in. I think it was at the Indianapolis airport. <laughs> and I was just locked in on this episode of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? I'm like, man, I wonder who did it. I can't remember. This is, I'm on the edge of my seat for this. And Lauren's looking at me like, you you can't be the guy who's locked into this right now. We're in public. We can't have that right now. Like, I don't have any shame in watching Scooby-Doo. I have no problem with that whatsoever. The movies, eh, didn't do it for me. But those animated series from like the 60s and don't get me started on Scrappy. We didn't need any of that, that Scrappy nonsense. Oh, I'll say this. I think the best version of Scooby-Doo is Mystery Incorporated, which I think is still on Netflix. Like I said, I'm a big time, like, if I'm not watching sports, I'm watching something to just kill my brain cells because I have, like, pretty long days. And so, like, Mystery Incorporated is phenomenal for that. It's, like, the art's really good, the stories actually make sense, and it's it's probably the best Scooby-Doo out there. Do um, Scoob and Shag still smoke a lot of weed? Uh, they they always do that. That's the key part yeah. of like just me yeah. looking at Scoob and Shag and them looking at me and being like, "You get it." Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such a lost over the head moment. Didn't realize that until I was in high school. That oh yeah, they were definitely high all the time. Um, but yeah, that show that show aged well. What can I say? They were munching. Sarth, yeah, just munching. Just a couple of bros munching. You know, solving some mysteries in their spare time. Uh, Sarthak he um, Sarthak Sharma he says. I feel like you never truly move on from those shows. I might throw on an episode of Dragon Ball Super, Hey Arnold, or Doug in between strategy meetings at work. The ability to turn off your brain, as you just talked about, I think that's why it's so nice. Mm -hmm. 
I there like I, I get people that want to watch these shows on Netflix and Amazon Prime and stuff that are real like suspenseful and you got to follow along the entire time. I don't know. I, maybe it's just the current climate of the world where everything has become like so serious and it's just been a really heavy time in our country not to like get too deep into that or for whatever reason, but we always gravitate toward that stuff that we can just be able to sit there and relax, not have to follow along so closely. We binge watched um, The West Wing from start to finish. And that is a show where if you are on your phone for five minutes and if you are not totally locked in, that's gonna fly right past you and you're gonna miss some key key moments in that storyline. But like that's the last time I feel like we've really watched a show that we've had to be totally locked in on. Usually I can kind of pick up where Helga is gonna be able to make things up to Arnold after being super mean to him. Um, so I don't really feel bad about missing out on a couple <laughs> minutes of Hey Arnold here and there. Some character but, development? Some character development a little bit. Phoebe chimes in and is like, Helga, maybe you should just express your feelings. Um, no, but it's a, it's a little bit different. But I think that's part of it. I think that's kind of part of the reason why we, we find these shows so entertaining. Matthew Sadro, he says, I think they make kids, he's got kids in air quotes, kids shows knowing that adults will more than likely be watching them with their kids. So they will pander to both audiences equally, have the teaching moments and the little funny stuff for the kids and subtle jokes and euphemisms for the adults watching with them. So it's both acceptable and encouraged for adults to watch kids shows. I also highly recommend watching The Amazing World of Gumball, Cartoon Network show with 15 minute episodes. I love that. Uh, Looks like a kid's show, but has such great material for adults. They do sprinkle in the lessons there. They do, and maybe you don't realize them until you're a little bit older, but some of those lessons are are very, very valuable about just like the way that you should treat other human beings. And kids shows are more, probably more impactful than I realized at the time, but I've never I've never heard of the amazing world of is it Gumball? Yeah. Gumball, is that it, Will? Yeah, okay. so, so like, thinking about this, like, Cartoon Network had a very interesting arc because, like, they started off with shows like Cow and Chicken that would just, when you go back, you're like, oh, bro, this is kind of gross. And then you look, <laughs> you look, like, then they had, like, The Next Generation, which, like I said, Ed and Eddie, like, Codename Kids Next Door, and those were, like, pretty good shows, but there was still, like, some stuff in there. And now it's, like, Adventure Time, like, not not now necessarily, but, like, like as I grew up out of it. Like, they have, like, Gumball, Adventure Time, and it's, like, shows that are, like, wholesome and like good shows and they're like super well animated it's like hmm like they, they seem to really put it all together now that's the goal i just don't want I, i've always kind of feared that a little bit i've had certain moments where you know babysitting the kids next door or something like that back in the day where i'm watching some of these things and maybe it was just because of the time of my life where it's like beginning of college or late high school when i think i'm, I'm too cool for this but now as an adult there are some of those moments watching these shows where you realize that actually this is pretty good. This is pretty good. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say this is a waste of my time by any means. Derek Walden, uh, he said, I watched Rocco's Modern Life not long ago and finally realized, like a lot of kids' shows, how dirty it really was. I did not have that thought. Tell, Will, you've got, I know you've got takes on Rocco's Modern Life. Dude, that's exactly what I was just talking about. Like, that dude was like... The society he lived in was a little bit messed up. That's all I'm gonna say. Like, whenever you go back and like, and like I said, like the other day, there was a there was a scene in Cow and Chicken that like John, we were lifting the other day, and John just goes, "Bro, do you remember the scene in Cow and Chicken?" Like it was. I'm not even gonna get into it, but it it was like, how did we get? How did our parents let us watch this back in the day, bro? That's a great question because everybody had that policy about watching The Simpsons. 
growing up? Yep. Were you a kid who could watch The Simpsons or were you a kid that couldn't watch The Simpsons? Mm -hmm. That pretty much separate, that was like the line in the sand of, do your parents just let you do whatever you want and you can kind of stay up as late as you want or do you actually have strict parents? And if that line in the sand, if you were on the wrong side of it, which I, I, I was allowed to watch The Simpsons, but I would still say that my parents are strict, so that kind of defeats the purpose of my point. But watching some of these shows back, I would absolutely be in that camp. Like, I have no idea why my parents were letting me watch Austin Powers and all these Adam Sandler movies as a kid that as a seven, eight-year-old, I'm like, I shouldn't be saying lines from Happy Gilmore. That's not the type of stuff that we should be talking about in second grade. I should be watching Rugrats strictly. And then actually, if there's even references in there that I shouldn't be making, I don't know. But yeah, I, I think that as we get older and we see some of those references, I think we pick up on a lot more. I'll have to go back and watch Rocko's Modern Life. I hated that show as a kid. I was not a Rocko's Modern Life guy. I didn't like Ren and Stimpy either. Yep, that was another great good. example. Like, they were really just pushing the limits early, man. Raunchy, raunchy. The, uh, yeah, the, the limits of what you can go to as a kid's show, I think those have changed a little bit since then. And I'll say this too, like, I had the kind of parents, and I'm sure lots of Southern parents were like this, it's like, there was almost a third option about, like, you know, the Simpsons and stuff, because for a generation that was family guy and it's like my family would let me watch whatever mm. around them but they would pause it every five minutes and try to teach me a lesson about it and i'd be like all right oh, I'd, no. <laughs> like i'd rather just not watch this be like now will you know what they're saying right there that you shouldn't say that it's like i okay man i'd rather just not watch this okay <laughs> see that's that's a smart approach to have i had I have memories still as being a fourth grader and watching 48 hours with my parents and being terrified that a murderer was going to come into my home and, <laughs> and just slice my throat. Like that That's the type of stuff where I wish my parents had said, yeah, you need to leave the room now because this isn't built for a fourth grader and there's no benefit to me watching that. There's zero benefit. There's zero upside. It's just laziness to be able to say. Hey, you should get out of the room right now. My mom did a great job parenting us. She was real. She she actually did. I, I shouldn't say that, but there are. Isn't it so weird how those those scenes they stick out in your mind? And it can be from a kid's show as well. I've had moments watching Hey Arnold where Laura and I look at each other and we remember how something is going to go. Stoop kids afraid to leave a stoop. Of course. Everybody, everybody remembers that episode. It's iconic. I don't know why I remember that. I don't know why that specific thing sticks with me, but it, for whatever reason, does. Kids' brains, weird. Very, very weird. Two more here. Um, Chris Turnberg, he says, I have and still do catch myself subconsciously watching my nine and three-year-old shows when they aren't even around. It's the weirdest thing. Imagine turning on the TV and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse comes on, only you don't turn it on automatically. I'm trying to get my nine-year-old involved in things that I watched when I was a kid, things like Guts and Jimmy Neutron. Jimmy Neutron was the first kid's show I remember watching and being over it. So maybe that's the time. Maybe that's the specific time when maybe everybody has that one show where they decide to move on. Because that was that now that he brings this up, I have this this memory of tuning into one episode and saying, "Nope, can't do this. I'm flipping on SportsCenter." Yeah, Jimmy Neutron for me, that was the switch to Cartoon Network because it was the, like like that and the Fairly Odd Parents were the last two Nick shows that I really yes. got into. And they were like usually back to back and they did a crossover episode and they like carried that network for a minute, like the way I remember it. And then it was like, okay, I'm getting a little bit too old for Timmy Turner. Like, let me go over here. 
Yeah, I don't know. Jimmy Neutron is, and people still talk about that hairstyle. Yep. Shout out to Marty Smith. People still bring that up. I don't know why. <laughs> Shout out Marty not, Smith. Not, not iconic enough of a show to be able to have your own hairstyle named after you, in my opinion, but whatever. Michael Dark. Darky, I always mess this up. Why do I always mess this up, man? Why do I always mess this up? Michael D. He says, my kids are more focused on YouTube at this point. Coco Melon haunts my dreams. The YouTube transition, I've heard a lot about this, about people that have kids that just want to sit there and watch YouTube all day. They just want to watch Dude Perfect videos all the time. And oh, that's another thing that I do that's way not my demographic at all. I watch every new Dude Perfect video that comes out. Am I, did I just never grow up? Uh, did, am, I, High, am I 12? Hoover High School greats, man. Dude Perfect. Uh, yeah, man. Wait um, a minute. Wait a minute. Boy, back up, back up, back up. They went to Hoover? Yeah. So a couple of the guys did. They were like a year or two above me. And I remember when they started getting started, like people were in their videos that I was friends with. And it was like the coolest thing in the world. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> I thought I knew everything about Dude Perfect. I even watched the, the documentary and still had no idea. I thought they all grew up in Texas. No, a couple of like the a couple of the guys in the background, and like that's how our guys, especially when they were starting out, when they needed lots of people, they would just hit up Hoover people, and so like a ton of people I know have been in their videos. Gosh, that is beyond random. I thought if you were going to be in any sort of reality series at Hoover, it would be two days, but here we are. The YouTube thing, that is one hundred percent like where I think if 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 we have kids, I think that is what they will be locked into. I think it's a little bit tougher to be able to sit through a full TV show now. And, and it's like once you, once you get old enough, I think, maybe five, six, I don't know what that age is to be able to feel comfortable. But that's probably another thing that parents have to navigate all the time is like being able to have your kid unsupervised just watching YouTube videos. And they could just, all right, you're going to be able to watch YouTube videos for 20 minutes and everything has to be appropriate and all that. Um, but that's something I never, ever had to deal with. And that's because YouTube came out when I was a junior in high school, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, that seems like a really tricky thing to have to do that. But I actually, I find myself doing that a lot. Like I, I could have an hour, just random YouTube videos. And, and a lot of it's will be background stuff while I'm working or something like that. But I, I go through phases like that to you. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure, it's like, you get like a, if you get like a new gadget, or if you get like a new thing, and you want to learn everything about that thing, or you go like, dude, I gotta, I used to, when I had like, uh, when I was going to an office, like my lunch breaks, man, I would just dive into like, you know, 2006 college football, and like random mm. games, and like the breakdowns, it's like, yeah, you can look up and an hour's gone like that. Consider that a seamless transition into subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you have not done that, Saturday Down South YouTube channel, great, great stuff. If you have not seen any, any of our videos that we've been cranking out, a lot of great stuff there. Adam did such great, such great stuff with Starting Five. Um, but definitely make sure that you do that. Subscribe to all of our content. If you have not joined the Saturday Down South podcast group on Facebook, you should totally do that. If you have not subscribed to our newsletter yet, even though I always, always, always hype it up, you should totally do that. If you haven't subscribed to College Football Uncensored, the newest podcast from Saturday Down South, you should totally do that wherever you get your podcasts. 
We have so much great content on SaturdayDownSouth.com right now, despite the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit slower on the football side, but we're kind of in this weird place where we have news from every single big revenue sport going on right now, and it's a fun time to be a college sports fan. So I always say it is the true one-stop shop, but I, I, I really, really mean that. Um, again, just because the madness is over doesn't mean that you should stop going to SaturdayDownSouth.com for all of your content needs. I know that we're still gonna have a lot of big things planned. Got a lot of spring football content coming your way as well. I think the plan next week is gonna be to do some quarterback tiers. Been a little bit since we've talked about all the quarterbacks in the SEC. Haven't had a chance to be able to dive into some of these battles as much yet, and I wanna be able to to do something um, quarterback related. So that I think is going to be in the works next week so yes thank you for everyone who um everyone who submitted a question on facebook group as well enjoy the final four thanks guys talk soon